0: hey man how's it going guys welcome to the show it's my show the Scott Horton show I don't know why my mic is kind of quiet you seem kind of quiet to you guys yeah, I mean it turned up a little there uh yeah hey it's my show the Scott Horton show uh libertarian foreign policy mostly uh today on the show I don't know I guess it's gonna be like um, Monday again with no guests. I couldn't think of who I wanted on the show today. Yeah. Uh, I got a couple invites out. Maybe we'll hear back. I was trying to get Vijay Prashad to come on and talk about Libya. Oh, and then also I had an invite out to uh, Andy Worthington to talk about the new Guantanamo Bay thing, but I just don't know if those things are going to happen. But that's alright, because I got plenty of bad news to cover for you. And I think maybe I had one or two good news stories, although I can't think of what they might have been. Oh, yeah, I also had an invite out to, uh, good old Jim Narakas at Fair. He had written an interesting thing, too. Yeah, it's three invites out. Oh, and, uh, Jason Ditz from antiwar.com, I wanted to ask him about a thing he wrote, so. You know, that's possibilities, probabilities, maybe even, for at least one good interview. What do you think? Mm. We'll see. Also, here's another thing. After the show today, Tom Woods is interviewing me. So I'll be on his show, I guess, for tomorrow's episode of the Tom Woods Show. If you like hearing me say stuff, you know. Which you obviously do. Uh, Chat room, guys. Hey, chat room, guys. What's going on? Um, ScottHorton.org slash chat. That's the chat room. That's where you go if you like chatting with people. Hey, Scott, how long before the Twitter Trust and Safety Council stops your tweets? The Trust and Safety Council? Is that what they call it? Jesus. Uh, you know, I don't know. I'm a pretty rude Twitterer, so. Not long? Uh, I, yeah, I could imagine them putting a halt. Uh, you know. I mean, I mostly just fight with people who, you know, start up in my mentions. Rather than simply, you know interrupting and stalking and harassing others. However, uh yeah, you know, there's a bit of that. And, of course, when they do suspend someone, they usually don't even say why, right? So, uh, you know, who knows? I guess I'm kind of surprised Uh that I haven't been banned yet. But then again, maybe nobody cares what I tweet. Hmm, that might be something. Sort of like this show. How can they let you keep doing this show? Nobody cares. I mean, except you guys, but it's not that many of you. <laughs> you know, relatively speaking, in raw numbers, there's millions. No. No, there's not. All right. Um, so I guess I'm kind of bummed out because last night when I was watching uh, for a very short time, the uh democratic town hall on CNN I recorded it um I saw this guy wow he's asking about foreign policy so I started recording the question the question was about didn't libya and syria uh both teach you and iraq as well that you can't just go around overthrowing countries governments uh because look you don't know what's going to happen next you know so her syria answer She doesn't answer the question at all. She just says, Oh, yeah, well, you know, I sure am in favor of this ceasefire because it should stop the Russians from protecting the Assad government. In other words, she still wants Al-Qaeda to overthrow Assad and damn you and your question about what might happen next. Who cares? I got my agenda and my Rubio-style talking points, and I'm sticking to them, she declared, refusing to even address the question at all. And then she changed gears to Libya. Again, I recorded all this last night. Um, uh, th- That was my original point. But then I thought, well, whatever, it'll be on YouTube tomorrow, or they'll have the transcript I couldn't find it anywhere this morning. I can only find partial quotes. Um, and not the audio. I really wish I'd saved it. But anyway, so here's part of what she said on Libya, and it's more or less the case she made. I want to give the people of Libya a chance of actually forming a government. Because they don't have one now, and not that they have freedom in the place of a government. They have war in place of a government. I'm hoping we can give them the time and space to actually make a difference for their country in the future. They had an election, and it was a good election. That was an amazing accomplishment. Well, you know, again, this is just a partial quote. She started out pretending that Gaddafi, who she admitted didn't even have an army, only his own kind of personal Gestapo, was killing people. Uh huh. Who was he killing? Al Qaeda guys. And what did she claim at the time? That he was going to massacre every last man, woman, and child in Benghazi. That he had sworn that he was going to murder all the civilians of Benghazi if America didn't stop him. Which she knew was a lie. And which we know the CIA and DIA told her is not true. Before she went ahead and used that as uh, her fake causes belly anyway. Not that Obama didn't give the order. I'm not trying to diminish his responsibility. But she was on the record at the time claiming the, quote, credit for forcing him to do it, basically. Or being the leading proponent inside the administration of launching the war. On a fake belly, Right? Uh, just like uh, Bill Clinton pretended a 100,000 Kosovars had been killed, she pretended a 100,000 Libyans were about to be killed. Based on complete lies. And you can even read in Foreign Affairs where uh, they concede that, yeah, that wasn't true. And you can read in the Washington Times, and not some cranky, ridiculous Benghazi story, but good reporting on the Libya war in the Washington Times. CIA and DIA told her it's not true. She knew it wasn't true. And then, can you imagine the unmitigated gall of her to say, well, they had an election. The country of Libya doesn't even exist anymore. It's split into warring factions. Two different governments claiming rule over the whole country. Neither of them with the ability to rule more than a city. And more armed gangs, criminal and ideological and otherwise, than anybody can count. And foreign intervention all the way around. Saudis and Turks and Egyptians, Qataris, Americans, the French, the British... The Italians, everyone's still messing around in there. And she wants to say, oh, they had an election? Yeah. And did the people who won that election, do they control a monopoly state in Libya at all? Right now, no. They held an election, an election. Libya doesn't exist. It's just a civil war. And now the Islamic State claims at least a major, one major city there. And their allies rule Tripoli. And uh, uh, Abdel Hakim Belhaj, who she helped put in power there, is now the leader of the Islamic State there. And then she actually said, and this is the other thing that's not in the written quote here. Let's see if I can find the audio again during the break. Where she said... Something very close to, hey, look, we've been in Japan and Germany for 50 years, and these things take time. Gonna occupy North Africa forever when Hillary Clinton has her way. You know, because she created a terrible disaster there and has to fix it. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the right to keep and bear arms, on Kindle at Amazon.com today. You hate government? One of them libertarian types? Or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers. Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still. If you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. Okay, so I found the whole clip here, man. I'm going to play it. It's unbelievable. It's worse than I thought. But let me just go ahead and address the occupation of Germany and Japan and Korea as the examples here. All right. Germany was split in half. The Soviets got the eastern half of it. The Americans and the Brits got the west and West Berlin. And uh they were under, well... Uh, complete and total military domination by the Allies, uh who created a government, basically, of people who were willing to get along because of what they were up against. They were forced right into the American camp. And, you know, all the worst Nazis, of course, were imported to the United States, so the U.S. didn't have to deal with them in Germany. I just gave them jobs in the CIA and making germ weapons and torturing people and that kind of stuff. Fun stuff. So the Nazis weren't an issue. And it was already, it had been a a parliamentary democracy in the past. Denazification basically, you know, reverted them back to Weimar status kind of a thing. In Japan, they had also been a parliamentary democracy, of course, still with an emperor but they had already had the forms of you know british style western democratic uh, institutions and this and that before the rise of right wing imperialism and of course the emperor had and in his regime had virtually complete control over that society and you know in no small part because of the loyalty of the people to the authority of the emperor and so when he said we surrender. When Tojo and the emperor surrendered, that was it. The whole society surrendered. And when they said, all right, and everybody go along with the Americans who are occupying us, psh, those were basically orders as though the whole society were privates in the army. Um, a situation not likely to ever be repeated. And then, of course, in Korea... The reason we have troops there is because America invaded Korea in order to prop up the Japanese Vichy fascist government. Uh, the imperial government under Japanese colonialism there. And in order to fight off the communists, who were the leaders of the insurgency, against the Japanese. And I don't know how many, what, a million and a half or two million Koreans were killed in a holocaust of a war there to uh, you know restrict the communists to the northern part of that peninsula. And the reason we still have 35,000 troops there now is as a tripwire for war to make sure that the South Koreans don't ever have to defend themselves and to basically allow their politicians to spend money militarizing and creating a blue water navy while we're defending their northern border. They get to go and, you know, try to pick a fight with their old enemies, the Japanese, our other allies. The whole thing is a freaking disaster. We still don't even have a peace treaty after 70 years. 65, whatever the hell, I can't do math very well on the air. Live in real time. But anyway. And then these are her comparisons. This is her answer. Hey, look. We've had to occupy Japan, Korea, and Germany ever since World War II, and we plan on in, in occupying them indefinitely. And so, why should Libya be any different? That's what Hillary says: invade and conquer, and stay in Libya forever, forever. It's almost unbelievable, except that it's not. And, yes, I'm stalling for time now looking for my uh, We Came, We Saw, He Died clip. But anyway, yeah, she really does think she's Alexander the Great. Here's the audio. Let's listen to this from, uh, from the debate last night. I'll try to keep notes on all the different horrifying things she says.
1: is a little different. Libya yeah, um, actually held elections. They elected moderates. They have tried to piece together a government against a lot of really serious uh, challenges internally coming from the outside with uh, terrorist groups and uh, and other bad actors. They're working to try to unify the different factions inside Libya so that they can take united action against the terrorists and try to get the, the east and the west of the country working together You know, they're a rich country. They have oil. They're not um, without resources, but they've got to get over their internal disputes. And the United States, Europe, and others are helping them to try to do that, and I think they need some time and support. I know the United States has taken some actions against terrorists inside Libya, uh, particularly ISIS training camps, uh, and I support that because I want to give the people of Libya a chance to actually form a government and realize the promise of getting rid of Gaddafi, who had so oppressed the country for, you know, more than 40 years, hollowed out all the institutions, threatened genocide against his own people, which is one of the reasons why the rest of the world intervened. And I'm hoping that we can give them the time and space to actually, you know, make a difference uh, for their country in the future.
2: How do you explain the time and space to people? Because when you... You're right about ISIS being there. The U.S. just had to bomb. Uh, The place, by most estimates, is in its nightmare phase right now. Is it an example for people to say, you see what happens when we get involved? You see what happens when you take somebody out? You don't know what's going to replace it. Maybe we shouldn't have done it that way. Do you believe there is a mistake involved in Libya right
1: now? Well, let me make two points. One, let's remember what was going on at the time. Uh, This was at the height of the Arab Spring. The people in Libya were expressing themselves, were... Demanding their freedom, and uh, Gaddafi responded brutally and said that he would, he would just cut them down like cockroaches, and made it very clear that he would use his mercenaries because he didn't have a standing army. He had a lot of hired mercenaries from around uh, to do literally that. The Europeans, who are across uh, the sea from Libya, you know, came to us and said, "This is on our doorstep. We need your help." Basically, they said, we were with you in Afghanistan, we need you now to help us with Libya because we've got to prevent this uh, uh, terrible happening uh, that could result from Gaddafi. We had Arabs come to us and say the same thing. We formed the first coalition between NATO and Arab nations. Arab nations actually uh, ran a lot of the air campaign and other support systems. So I think you have to look at what was going on at the time and why it seemed, uh, and I agree with this, Uh, to make sense for us to bring our special uh, assets uh, to the table to help uh, the people of Libya. Now I go back to this point they had an election and it was a good election it was a fair election it met it met international standards that was an amazing accomplishment for a nation that had been so deprived for so long. You know the United States was in Korea and still is for many years Um, we are still in Germany we are still in Japan We have a presence in a lot of places in the world that started out as a result of conflict. And if you think about South Korea, there were coups, there were assassinations, there was a lot of problems for the Koreans to build their economy, to create their democracy. This doesn't happen overnight. And yes, it's been a couple of years. I think it's worth European support, Arab support, American support to try to help the Libyan people realized uh, the dream that they had when they went after Gaddafi.
0: Hey, Al, Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. If this nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone, we are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at ScottHorton.org or TheWarState.com. Hey, y'all, Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop, which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help follow along on paper and see for yourself. Wallstreetwindow.com. All right, you guys. Welcome back to the show. I got a real problem. I know this probably makes me sound like a sexist pig or whatever. I don't care. I really think I'm going to have to quit politics entirely if not leave the country, but I think I'm just going to I'm just going to get a job, you know, selling women's shoes or something and just live a tiny little life. And not pay attention to anything going on in the world around me for eight years if she's the president. Because I just can't stand it. I just can't stand it. It's the sound of her voice. That's the part that makes me sound like a sexist pig, I guess, right? We're hearing her talk. It's like a needle in my ear, man. Now, George W. Bush, even when he was being funny in his horribleness, I never found it funny. He just drove me into a rage. You know, Obama, I hate, but I guess... I'm just so tired of being that angry that mostly I don't, like, get that personally upset about him. But I can't listen to him talk. I just, my ADD kicks in immediately when he starts blabbing. I'll just read the transcript later. I just can't. I do hate him, you know, in principle. I just don't, I don't rage at the TV and just want to strangle my television uh, the same way it was in the Bush years. Um... But with Hillary Clinton, I just want to hang myself from the ceiling fan. I just can't drift her entire, yeah, I don't know. It's like listening to uh, Clint Black, okay? If somebody tries to make me listen to Clint Black, then no. I will run out screaming. I just, oh, I just hate that fake country clone twang that they all have. You're either Willie or you're Johnny Cash, or shut up. Clint Black. Ugh, just, mm, that fake, that's not your voice. Stop faking that fake twang, whichever Hank you're trying to impersonate. Just kill yourself. Please. That's how Hillary Clinton's voice affects me. I just, ugh. I just, yeah, maybe she could get her vocal cords scraped or something or something and just change the pitch there a little bit. It just gets me, I'm sorry, I, this is not substantive. I'm only talking about my own problems here. I just, I just can't stand her. And I don't think, I just don't, I can't foresee, I can't imagine her being the president for eight years and me being forced to pay attention Every day. (laughs) No. no. Uh, But you know what? I don't think that's going to be a problem because I think Donald Trump is going to absolutely obliterate Hillary Clinton. I think a lot of people perceive her more or less the same way that I do. And I know that people feel that way about Trump, but yeah, including me. I mean, he's absolutely horrible on virtually everything. He's just horrible. But at least he's funny. At least he doesn't have that voice like Clint Black that makes you want to shoot yourself in the brain. No offense to all the Clint Black fans out there. I was just trying to think of... Now, I could have said Randy Travis or any of the rest of these freaks and losers with the same horrible voice that they're plagiarizing from whichever Hank it is that they're ripping off. Oh, I can't stand that. I just can't stand it. And um, yeah, so same difference uh, with Hillary Clinton. And I think, yeah, Trump is just going to destroy her. He even There was a quote from him yesterday where, oh, I haven't even turned on her yet. I haven't even begun. I don't even think he's going to have to take notes on a piece of paper. I think he's just got a running list of funny insults that he can use against her that is just going to destroy her. And I hope he doesn't take the low road and accidentally say anything sexist, because she can be completely destroyed without having to go there. I'm telling you before, I don't have the quote in front of me or anything, but there was one time, well, the most recent quote, they said, what about Bernie Sanders? And he goes, well, you know, it doesn't even matter, because it's obviously it's going to be Hillary. I mean... Unless she gets indicted. Ooh, burn. Jeb Bush would have never said that. And uh, it goes right to the part of your brain that knows that she's a criminal. It just only... You start asking yourself, I wonder for what? Which crime that she committed is he referring to when he says she might be indicted? The emails or something else? That's the only thing currently being investigated, right? Right? And anyway, so from the master persuader technique there, he already has you puzzling over which crime she committed is he referring to rather than the question of whether she's a criminal or not. Um, And it's effective because you already know she's a criminal. (laughs) You already know that he could be referring to any number of things. So, um, yeah, that's good. And there was a, a previous one where he said, you know, she's lucky. I think it was lucky. Now she's not in the penitentiary. Right? Not jail. But the pen. So immediately you're picturing the Supermax or, you know, the Green Mile or something, you know, like the state pen from what Oz on HBO or what oh orange is the new black. That's the one everybody likes, the women in prison. Immediately you're picturing Hillary in prison. And uh Yeah. And it's true. It's funny because it's true. And anyway, so, uh yeah, I don't think she stands a chance. And in fact, I think, and I've told y'all this, and I could be wrong, but I don't think so. But um I think probably, yeah, she could beat Rubio or Cruz. Because they both have severe weaknesses. I'm amazed that they're even still in this thing at all at this point. So she could beat them. But if it had been Jeb, I think Jeb would have beat her. I think... You know, Romney or whatever, you know, kind of just cookie-cutter Republican candidate. John Kasich, I think, could beat her. It doesn't take much charisma to be more charismatic than she is. And there are some people, don't get me wrong, there's some people that really like her, but then there's everybody else. And I think, you know, she's basically like Ted Cruz. You know, she's the candidate of specific people that will glom onto her, but that's it. Everybody else, uh, even if they don't react to her voice the way I do, uh, they react to her her character in the same way. Oh, yeah. Okay, and so, by the way, again, uh, to go through her statement on Libya from the thing. Sorry for the tangent there. That's pretty bad radio, I guess. Oh, moderates won the election. Yeah, they have no power whatsoever, the ones of them that are still alive. Terrorists are there, huh? Like Ansar al-Islam. Like the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group. Uh, Oh, I meant to say Ansar al-Sharia, pardon me. Ansar al-Sharia, the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group. Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. The groups that she sided with in the first place back in 2011, yeah. And the Islamic State that didn't even exist then until her Libya and then Syria operations led directly to the creation of the Islamic State which never would have even existed if it wasn't for her, and these two specific interventions that she's answering to. Nobody calls her out on that. Hey, where was ISIS in 2011, Hillary? Oh, they were still al-Qaeda in Iraq doing what Zawahiri said, right? Oh, okay. And they hardly existed at all at that point. They were, you know, they numbered in the low hundreds probably in Iraq at that point. For God's sake. Um, oh, and then she says, Oh, yeah, they're trying, we're helping them to unify the country right now. In other words, it's split completely apart into warring factions, and they're failing to unify the country right now. Couldn't help but, uh, slip in a Freudian style that, you know, they got a lot of oil, so, you know, yeah, there's a future there. Or, uh, but I mean, yeah, we just gotta help them put the, uh, organize the thing a little bit better. Then she brought up the fake genocide again. She pretended that Gaddafi was at war with the people rather than a bunch of bin Ladenites. She admitted he didn't have an army, only mercs. And then she invokes the Saudi and Qatari cooperation as proof of legitimacy. And then she said election again. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation if this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Robertson Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium. And they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Roberts Roberts at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. This part of the Scott Horton Show is sponsored by Audible.com. And right now, if you go to audibletrial.com slash Scott Horton Show, you can get your first audiobook for free. Of course, I'm recommending Michael Swanson's book, The War State, The Cold War Origins of the Military Industrial Complex and the Power Elite. Maybe you've already bought The War State in paperback, but you just can't find the time to read it. Well, now you can listen while you're out marching around. Get the free audiobook of The War State by Michael Swanson, produced by Listen and Think Audio at audibletrial.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, y'all, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. I'm sorry for saying Randy Travis should kill himself. I just hate that kind of music so much. It just that fake twang thing just infuriates me, man. Can you imagine knowing that that was the mark that you left in the world is that fake whining, horrifying tone? Now my whining horrifying tone is completely legitimate and not fake at all, so There's a big difference. Anyway. And I can tell one Hank from the other anyway, so I didn't mean to attack whichever Hank you guys like. Sorry. All I was really trying to do was say I hate Hillary Clinton, and I just can't stand to hear her talk. I just can't stand it. I think I'm going to fly away to the moon and live there for a very little while and just be done with it. All right. So, anyway, the news is that uh, Trump stomped everyone in Nevada. He is definitely going to be the nominee, if not the president. I'm pretty damn sure he's going to be the president, too. Um, But uh, I think it was uh, he got right around 50% and. The other two got 25 each, something like that. I'm off by a few percents either way, but it's uh, Rubio and Cruz combined to equal Trump's numbers there. And then I thought this was funny because it's not just Rubio. It's the entire establishment's point of view on what the hell is going on here. Uh, Their desperation in clinging to Marco Rubio here. (laughs) Just think about the position the neocons and the bankers and Wall Street and the Republican Party leaders are in that, well, geez, I guess we got Rubio. <laughs> Rubio. Anyway, so his thing was here, he says, uh, well, you know, the majority of the Republican electorate do not want Donald Trump to be the nominee. Oh, Okay, but a super-duper majority, by the same measure, don't want Rubio to be the nominee either. As long as we're measuring measurements and stuff. When Trump is beating Rubio two to one. Mr. Distant second place. And then he sort of kind of correctly here says, You don't win the nomination by how many states you win. Well... Uh, yeah, you do, but it is true that they changed the rules in order to screw Ron Paul last time to make it where you have to have a majority vote, not just win in a plurality, but you have to have a majority vote in, I think, at least eight states to have your name entered into nomination, and so um I don't know exactly what that's going to amount to. I guess it could lead to some kind of brokered convention. If Cruz and Rubio stay in and Kasich and Carson, they're bribed to stay in to try to split that vote against Trump for as long as they can, then even still, what are they going to do in a brokered convention when he's going to be showing up with the delegates by far? He's going to kick their ass, you know, even in an open convention anyway. But anyway, it just goes to show that's the lines that they're thinking along is they're going to have to figure out a way to screw Donald Trump out of this thing. And it's funny because he literally says, Hey, you know, until there's some kind of consolidation here, you're not going to have a clear alternative to Donald Trump. And the argument we've made is, I'm as conservative as anyone in the race. But I'm the conservative that can unify the Republican Party. This is the guy who's turning out 20-something percent tops to Trump's 48 or 50, right? Co-host Ashley Earnhardt asked Rubio if he needs to start winning primaries in order to win the nomination. Well, you don't win the nomination by how many states you win, Rubio responded before claiming, oh yeah, no, he will take some of the winners, uh, takes all states in March, but uh, he didn't dare to name any of those states. And anyway... Now, and by the way, when I say screw Ron Paul, I'm not saying they screwed him out of the nomination because uh, he wasn't going to be able to get the nomination. He didn't win any states. But he did have a great ground game, and he did collect a lot of delegates uh, by playing very co- very carefully to the rules and did have the ability under the old rules to get his name entered into nomination. And that's even when you know they screwed him in Iowa and they screwed him all over the place. There's a whole book about how they... Um, you know, screwed him out, out of delegates and out of some of the primaries, you know, in some of the states and the caucuses, too. Um, but uh, at the very least, they should have had to have a fight about it. But They changed the rules in order to uh, prevent Ron from even having his name entered into nomination on the floor of the convention. And, of course, Rand, Benedict, Paul, was the first one to uh, throw his father under the bus and endorse Mitt Romney before they were even done screwing him yet. And I remember a lot of people at the time thought, well, that must have been a a Ron Rand strategy to do this smart thing or something. Uh Uh-uh, because then it later came out, a video where um, Ron and his wife, Carol, were asked about it. And uh, Rand Paul's mother says, well, he called and gave us 30 minutes notice that he was going to do it. Which clearly shows they did not plan it together uh, at any time. I mean, he didn't even ask whether that fit with his father's plans or what. Which is no surprise, obviously, but just for the record. Um, but anyway, uh, kind of a tangent, but kind of worthwhile to note. And so, yeah, uh, I guess this is why I always thought it was going to be Jeb before old uh, Black Swan, the businessman, got involved in this thing, was because the rest of the Republican Party field is so mediocre. I mean, they just have... Their, who's their intellectual leadership? They have none. They got Mitch McConnell is their leader in the Senate. That's the most powerful elected Republican official in the country. And he's the least charismatic person in North America. Got to be kidding me. They got Rush Limbaugh on the radio, but that's about it. They've got no leadership. They don't really believe anything except lies about current events, you know, but they don't have any principles other than they like drinking the blood of dead, innocent Arabs and being afraid and wanting police to protect them all day, every day from, you know, whatever nightmares they enjoy fantasizing and daydreaming about. But other than that, they don't have anything they care about other than pretending to be afraid, so who's going to lead them? And this is you know, this is why it's really a shame that Ron Paul, never mind Rand, it's too bad that Ron Paul isn't twenty years younger and able to run right now. Uh when people I don't know if they're really ready to hear a very libertarian argument yet, but he could certain they're certainly willing to hear that outsider argument right now. And he would make a great, even more outsider than Donald Trump, but also in stark contrast on every single actual political position. That really Trump is a rhino, basically, compared to, um, compared to the libertarian Ron, even though they both have crossover appeal. Trump is the compassionate conservative. Anyway. Um, yeah, really too bad Ron isn't there. And, you know, it's really too bad. I'll say this again, just because I like saying it. It's really too bad that Rand ever ran for the Senate at all or ever entered politics at all and didn't just stay an eye surgeon in Kentucky, um, because, or, you know, run for a local commissioner's court down there or something like that. Because the problem is that, um, Ron Paul's Liberty Report would be on CNN right now if it wasn't for Rand. You know, Rand took that torch, but then he just doused it. But if he had ever never entered the picture, Ron would still be an international superstar right now. And he would be absolutely demolishing the left from the left and the right from the right on a daily basis. Look at what a warmonger Bernie Sanders is. Look at what a socialist Donald Trump is. Attacking the right from the right and the left from the left every day teaching the wisdom of the philosophy of individual liberty to the people of this country and the world. Instead, Rand just took the entire project and destroyed it. What a jerk. Hey, I'll Scott here. Ever wanted to help support the show and own silver at the same time? Well, a friend of mine, libertarian activist Arlo Pignati, has invented the alternative currency with the most promise of them all. QR Silver Commodity Discs, the first-ever QR code, one-ounce silver pieces. Just scan the back of one with your phone and get the instant spot price. They're perfect for saving or spending at the market. And anyone who donates $100 or more to The Scott Horton Show at scotthorton.org slash donate gets one. That's scotthorton.org slash donate. And if you'd like to learn and order more, send them a message at commoditydiscs.com or check them out on Facebook at slash commoditydiscs. And thanks. Hey i all Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles, plus you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me, I on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday, and The Future of Freedom with FFF Founder and President Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there, scotthorton.liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. Okay, guys, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. This is my show, Scott Horton Show. So listen, Jason, uh, Jason Ditts from news.antiwar.com. News.antiwar.com. Um, he has a new piece at the American Conservative Magazine about Larry Summers' proposal to abolish cash. I don't think they'll get away with taking this big of a step right now. It's all in the name of the Islamic State. They want to abolish the $100 bill. And I think someone tweeted me, too. They're talking about abolishing the $500 euro note. Listen, um, yeah, you know, this could be a problematic problem because, uh well, think of it like this. If you were an evil Sith Lord bent on enslaving the planet with all of the gifted Frankenstein controls, then, yeah, that's what you'd do. You'd abolish cash. Say, for example, if you were Satan and you wanted to create the perfect system of human enslavement, you'd abolish cash and attempt to make every transaction digital and on your permanent record. And uh, and therefore, of course, obviously also uh, susceptible to being manipulated with the stroke of an enter key. It's perfect, right? Like if you were Satan and you meant to enslave all of mankind forever. Eh, yeah, getting rid of a cash alternative. Uh, big deal. Now, of course, it'll never work. And again, I don't think politically speaking that they'll be able to get away with it. Too many people are as reactionary as me about it. What the hell do you mean you're going to make it a crime for anybody to buy or sell anything without it being on their permanent record? What the hell is this? Nazi Germany or something? This is insane. And as Jason says, well, look, man. What good is uh, abolishing the hundred if you still got fifties or fifties if we still got twenties? The logic here is obvious to attempt to abolish cash and uh, everyone ought to absolutely panic and freak out and refuse as you're. Second or third priority of all, you know, public issues beyond stopping the wars immediately and this kind of thing. Uh, this is just huge and must be opposed. And, and when the trial balloons like this come out, there's gotta be a negative reaction. A severe one. Or else they'll say, Hey, all right. We put out a trial balloon and it seemed like they don't mind too much. Bad idea. Very bad. So, um, yeah, Jason Ditz, he's going to be on the show to talk about his great article. you got to read it. It's at com, The American Conservative magazine. It's really great. Uh, really scary stuff there. Uh, yeah. So, listen, um, actually, yeah, I want to talk about uh, Siri for a minute here. This is the most important thing. John Kerry... Oh, man. John Kerry says, if ceasefire fails, partition of Syria is plan B. Splitting the country could provide eventual solution. I just hate these guys. You know, the way they pretend that, yeah, you know, uh, the people of Syria left to their own devices, they'll all just keep killing each other. Foreign intervention is required in order to make them stop. Really? That's funny, because I actually remember the history of the last, say, 5 or 10 or 15 years. And, yeah, no, that's not true. It's intervention by America and America's allies, satellite states in the region, that have brought Syria to this ruin. One of the headlines today on Antiwar.com, in fact, is, uh, according to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, their best guess... And they are allied with the so-called rebels or, you know, lean toward them. But apparently, and I don't know on any actual particular accusation, but overall as far as keeping count of casualties, they have a prettier he. It's one Brit. Does seem to have a pretty good reputation. And, in fact, I'll go ahead because that sounds kind of, you know, suspicious. Um, But David Enders just after reporting from the Syria war told me, yeah, no, I mean, I actually thought I was very suspicious of the guy, too. But I was in Syria checking his work and it panned out that, you know, he was doing pretty, pretty damn good. So anyway, he's that guy. Syrian observatory is saying three hundred and seventy thousand have been killed in this war. I don't know. That kind of sounds like a lot. You can try to think of the same time frame of the American war in Iraq. But without the U.S. military in there, it seems like it must be a little high. But I don't know. It's been a hell of a war, too. But anyway, uh, Kerry says, if ceasefire fails, partition of Syria is plan B. Ceasefire is supposed to go into effect this weekend, but yeah. We'll see about that. And... um, Oh, Jason says at, at news.antiwar.com, Syrian government, some rebels endorse ceasefire plan. Groups will abide by pact, but don't expect much. And, of course, um, al-Nusra and the Islamic State that completely dominate the war against the Syrian state aren't part of the ceasefire. And, if, you know, are likely probably to turn on any... So-called rebel groups, loyal to the CIA, who they've been friendly with, if they do cease fire. Like, for example, Arar al-Sham, who's really nothing but another faction of Al-Qaeda. They're founded by the leaders of Al-Qaeda, the same as al-Nusra was. They still take their order, their orders from Ayman al-Zawahiri, the same as al-Nusra does. But they're part of the ceasefire. and Is that just a temporary arming-up period so America and Saudi can transfer more weapons to them for them to transfer on to al-Nusra the day after tomorrow. Is that it? And then, so here's the other thing. That's big news. Oh, wait, one more little news on this issue. More than 800 Islamists leave Germany to join Islamic State in Syria and Iraq. This is from DW.com. According to a newspaper report, more than 800 Islamists have left Germany. Uh, 60% of them German citizens. And man, you go back, well, I don't know how you'd find it in the index. One day Google will be able to search audio for text, search terms, you know, I don't know. I hope they come out with that soon. And then it'll be really easy to prove that I've been warning you about this for five years straight. You know, The Americans and their European allies pushing this jihad in Syria after a whole new generation of people have grown up during the Iraq war, giving them a whole new battleground to fight in, and now this much closer to Europe, and it's been apparent that European, I don't know, jihadis and wannabe jihadis, fake it till you make it, right guys, Uh, have been traveling there for years now, and... You know, the Paris attack, as horrible as that was, the Brussels, um I think it was in Brussels where it was the Jewish museum that was attacked in a synagogue, um, you know, the, and maybe one or two other attacks. Oh, Charlie Hebdo, of course, Um you know, this is nothing compared to what Western Europe could be subjected to as direct blowback from American and European foreign policy supporting the jihad in Syria all this time. And, uh you know, especially if I was in Europe, but even as an American, it's time to be a little bit paranoid. I wouldn't say be paranoid that they're going to hurt you or your family. They can't get, you know, your odds of being attacked by a terrorist are very low. America's odds of being attacked by terrorists keep going up and up and up. And uh, especially in Western Europe. And if 800 is the number, I guess I'd be surprised it's that low. All right, when we get back, I'm going to tell you about uh, Robert Kennedy Jr.'s new piece on Syria. I think you'll be interested in it. Hey, I'll Scott here. If you're like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it taste good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at DarrensCoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world. All specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. DarrensCoffee.com. Use promo code Scott and you get free shipping. DarrensCoffee.com. All right, you guys. Welcome back. Okay, so um, is it not on the page today? I thought it was on the page today. I guess we're running it tomorrow. Yeah, what the hell? Hang on a second. I'm gonna find the link for you. Uh, first, I gotta click this. Well, I thought I had it right here, but I wasn't paying attention. Uh, the article is Robert Kennedy Jr in the uh, Politico magazine. And you know what? There's some pretty good journalism in Politico magazine from time to time, I've got to say. And this one's really important. It's by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And it's called Why the Arabs Don't Want Us in Syria. And he starts out saying, an Arab killed his father. Hey you know, I don't know how suspicious I am of the whole Sirhan Sirhan thing anymore. Like kind of in a way I am, but then on the other hand, I don't know, man. Anyway, so uh, RFK Jr. anyway, he buys it and goes, look, Sirhan Sirhan killed my father. And so I've always been interested in, well, geez, why would he have done that? Of course, that was way back in 1968, for those of you who believe that history begins on 9-11-2001. The official story, by the way, is that it was revenge for Senator Kennedy sponsoring a huge arms sale to Israel for use against the Palestinians. And anyway, oh, and I guess uh, in the aftermath of the 67 war and the occupation of Uh, the rest of Palestine. So anyway, um, he goes on to tell the story of American intervention in Syria, hitting a lot of major points uh, from back in World War II, America running coup d'etats. He goes into the real history of how America really installed Saddam in power in the first place. And then, yes, he leaned more toward the USSR there in uh, the 1970s for a while before coming back under... American alliance in the Carter and Reagan years. But anyway, it's a good little history of American intervention in the Middle East since World War II from a certain you know point of view. And that point of view is mostly oil pipeline politics. And my problem with the article is that I think he oversimplifies it. When it comes to his conclusion paragraphs at the end... It just sort of falls apart, and he just starts making assertions, and he doesn't really tie it together that well. And I think the reason for that is because he makes the mistake of wanting to oversimplify it into one big reason. When, And I think we really should all learn this from the Iraq War. It's a lot of little reasons, none of them good enough, Uh, but none of them really the driving factor either. Uh, Well, maybe some more than others. But anyway, uh, there is a confluence of interests behind the uh, attempted half-assed regime change in Syria here over the last five years. And so, still worth mentioning, this article really covers the pipeline aspect well. And in fact, I think it's the best one that I've ever read on the question of the pipeline and how much that had to do with... Uh, American and, of course, Saudi and Qatari support for regime change against Assad and their motivation for exploiting the Arab Spring against him immediately. Of course, Israel's interest is completely played down here. But then again, fair enough. I don't care. Um, you're never going to find the whole story anywhere until I write my book. Uh, but, uh, which is coming soon, I think. But... um It's an important piece of it anyway. A very important piece of it. You can find it at politico.com slash magazine. It's called Why the Arabs Don't Want Us in Syria. It's by RFK Jr. And yeah, it's like 5,000 words or something, man. It's one of those where sit back and uh, take a bong rip or drink a beer as uh, Brad Hoff recommended. And uh, eh, enjoy. Pull up an armchair and this RFK story on your tablet, or something convenient, and read about it. Why the Arabs don't want us in Syria, and it's all about the pipeline politics, and it's really great, so how do you like that? Yes, I should have highlighted all the best parts of it or something to go over it with you, but you know what? It's really long, so just go read it. That's what the story's about anyway, It's just recommending reading. That's why I like radio so much in the first place. People talking about books that you don't get to hear about on TV. Yeah. Yeah. I'm too lazy to read books anymore. <laughs> but I can recommend articles. Alright. So that's the RFK thing. And how much time I got here? Well let's see. I want to listen to Ron Paul uh talk about money with these kooks on CNBC. Do you guys? Let's see if it'll run here. It says two minutes. Yeah, that's about right. Is it gonna play? Yeah, flash players and flash players blockers and things. Who knows what's going to play and what's not? You know, I don't. I certainly don't. All right. Well, fine. CNBC be that way then. Your player is no good.
2: Um. Oh yeah, here it goes. The approach. Probably isn't good politics. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't want to see the next uh, Obama appointment because it won't help liberty in any way, uh, from my viewpoint. But uh, I, I, I think McConnell's approach is closed-mindedness. Uh, I don't like closed-mindedness in uh, uh, when it comes to monetary policy or foreign policy or appointment for Supreme Court justice. But he could put somebody up, have a debate. I mean, uh, look how long they debated Bork uh, and made sure he didn't get in. They they can, they can debate and bring it out if he's a bad candidate. And he, it looks like they're afraid of the, the debate. So uh, the general rules are that you you know appoint somebody and the Senate has a debate. But uh, politically, that's, you know, that's the, the Constitution is not very practical for the politicians. Congressman Paul, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Um, you know, we're talking about the Supreme Court divide. We're talking about angst that's obviously being tapped into by both sides of the aisle with Sanders and with Trump. What changes it? What, where's the inflection point? Is there any, any catalyst, any outcome you can see that actually gets Washington to work more effectively again? Not under today's conditions. I mean, you could change 150 congressmen in the right direction. You still wouldn't have the votes. Uh, and even if you did have the votes, the people would rebel because the biggest problem we face is economic whether it's foreign policy economics is very much involved and our economy is a lot worse off than admit and if you want to have a have a policy of austerity uh... and and return to the basis that in a free market in a free country uh... markets are important for setting prices certainly the price of money but this whole idea of uh... the federal reserve taking interest rates down to zero then minus and uh, how much this hurts people uh, and if you go in and do this either with a congressional approval or with a president uh, the people be furious. I mean, we shouldn't have 47 million people on food stamps and we're in bankruptcy. And yet here I mentioned before that we're increasing. Everybody wants to, especially the Republicans, want to increase military spending. Nobody's going to cut. So you're not going to see this resolve. You're going to see Trumpism versus uh, Sanderism. And they're not a whole lot different. They're more.
0: Hey, I'll check out
2: the audiobook
0: of Lou Rockwell's Fascism vs. Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism vs. Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. All right, y'all, so, yeah, Sorry, I had taken calls today, except that, um, well, my Skype and phone call, taking computer, exploded. Well, okay, I destroyed it, trying to fix it. I swear to God, I took 75 screws out of that thing before I started trying to take it apart, but yeah, no, it was not enough. Anyway, Uh but so... And I have all the information for the call-in thingamajig. That's my point. Because it's a new computer and I haven't gotten around to that yet. But anyway, so maybe another day. All right. Uh, I got more news for you, but I want to hear the rest of this uh, Ron Paul thing. Here he is attacking, as he calls it, uh, Trumpism and Sandersism. Uh, the sainted Ron Paul, as uh, he was recently called by one
2: wag that we're increasing. Everybody wants to, especially the Republicans, want to increase military spending. Nobody's going to cut. So you're not going to see this resolve. You're going to see Trumpism versus uh, Sanderism. And they're not a whole lot different. They're more government. Uh, Sanders wants to make the government much bigger and tax people uh, when there's no growth out there. Uh, And Trump wants to come along and... He, he he doesn't want to make the government bigger. He wants to become the government, <laughs> the sole person that runs the government. But so that's not very Congress. good options.
0: Yeah, well, got that right. I'm sorry. I just can't help it. Every day just is another proof of Rand Paul and the disaster that is Rand Paul. Why should Ron have to be the only one up there saying it when he had a son who was just running for president. And he couldn't... He didn't have the wherewithal to say that. Not that, yeah, no, everybody's right about everything. But, no, everybody's wrong about everything. Are you kidding me? Trump, Sanders, these guys want to drive our country into the ground. And they mean well. That's the worst part of it. They think they're right, for God's sake. But we know better. <laughs> I mean... Man, seriously. Yeah, if only Ron was younger and still running. I just can't get over it. And people on Twitter all the time. Oh, yeah, well, who do you support? I'll support anybody. Well, who do you prefer? Nobody. I will concede that there are a couple that I hate more than the others. I admit I hate Hillary more than Bernie. And I guess I probably... Hate Trump more than Bernie. And Trump and Bernie are equivalent to me, I guess. And Trump's probably the more dangerous. But then he's hilarious too, so there's that. But that shouldn't really count for much. Um, Cruz and Rubio are both, you know, whatever scum on the bottom of my shoe. They're not worthy of mention even, but anyway. Alright, I did have other things to uh, mention on the show here, but I just forgot what they were. Oh, yeah. This was one. I'm trying to get uh, Basevich on the show, but uh, next week. he was unavailable. But he had written a thing about this. Here's another one along these lines. Obama's Russian rationale for trillion-dollar nuke plan signals new arms race. And this is the kind of thing that you know, definitely is going overlooked due to partisanship. You know, the Republicans don't, uh, other than, you know, Ron, who doesn't count, uh, nobody really wants on the right to criticize this. uh, Because it's militarism and they just love it by default. Um, And the liberals don't want to criticize it because it's their hero Obama, so they just look away. And it's the White House pushing this, I mean, obviously, in response to um, demand by the suppliers in the economics of the nuclear weapons industry, um, bribing the government to want to buy nuclear weapons from them at incredibly marked-up prices. And, And they're... Willing to risk the future of all mankind just for some bucks. That's it. I haven't read of a single indication anywhere that the Obama regime has resisted this in any way. want a whole new generation of nuclear weapons for a trillion dollars? Yeah, sure, go ahead. Why not? And including cruise missiles, nuclear-tipped cruise missiles with dial-a-yield capability on them so it might be a city killer or it might be just to take out one silo somewhere and it might be a conventional warhead headed your way or it might be a nuke and putting every would be uh, receiver of a cruise missile in the position of having to guess whether they're being nuked or not this is the same thing we talked about remember years ago Obama and his people were proposing and maybe they're doing this still They want to put conventional warheads on three-stage intercontinental ballistic missiles. The kind that you use to deliver H-bombs. And they want to put conventional explosives on them. So, hey, forget the drones. We'll just launch ICBMs from Missouri or Kansas or North Dakota or whatever, somewhere, um, from submarines, and we'll just drop... You know, 500 pound bombs or whatever on people with three stage rockets. Now there's a good waste of money. Boy, oh boy, you could, you could get rid of a lot of dollars doing that. You could also confuse your enemies all over the world as to whether they're being nuked or not and what their proper response should be. Anyway, try to put yourself in the mindset of a nuclear weapons lobbyist. Like, okay, I'm getting up this morning and I'm going to the Capitol to say, like, hey, Congressman, we need more nukes. Here's a briefcase full of money and some cocaine and some hookers and a thick steak for dinner. Now can we have a trillion dollars? To build new H-bombs with, please, congressman. And then the congressman says, yeah, thanks for the coke and the whores and the steak. And the money. And that's it. There is no check and balance. Get it? It's not a self-correcting system. And I admit, the only reason I go on and on like this about the nukes is because, you know, I'm basically just criticizing myself in in a sense that despite everything I know about the economics of politics, as Obi-Wan Kenobi calls it, Of and everything I know about the military-industrial complex and their history, especially, you know, of course, since World War II, of simply just bribing the Congress to keep them busy, threatening to kill us all in the Cold War and ever since then, too. And yet, still somewhere in my brain there was this Leftover dissonance, this fantasy from my fourth grade civics lessons that when it comes to hydrogen bomb policy, someone cares enough to be thinking about the country and the national interests and what are we really doing here with our H-bombs. Somebody's in charge, right? Right? And then, yeah, no. The whole thing is no different than... You know, a bunch of housing developers lobbying for more Section 8 housing. Or, um, you know, Lockheed or Citigroup lobbying for more welfare so that they can take their cut from that. No different from, you know, Boeing lobbying for the government to buy more fighter jets. and Lockheed, an even better example, to buy more fighter jets. Raytheon, mo- more drone warfare. It's the very same economic incentives. When it comes to the H-bombs that could kill us all, and there's no more check and balance, there's no more break on it than there is with any of the rest of that stuff. It's just a runaway freight train until we're all dead. Go read about The Intercept right now. Obama, the Peace Prize winner. Hey, i I'll Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment. MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. All right, you guys, welcome back to The Thing here, man. Wrapping up the show for today. I'm Scott Horton doing the Libertarian Foreign Policy bit. All right, so, um, well, I want to go back to uh, yesterday's news here because I think it's so important. Talked with Grant Smith about this, a poll that his organization did, Institute for Research, Middle Eastern Policy. Americans holding favorable views of Israel declined 16%. And this, of course, is uh, because of social media, because of Facebook and Twitter and the ability of the average nobody to go around NBC and CNN and find out what they want from their peers on the other side of the planet. It's as simple as that. Uh, the fact of the occupation, I don't know how well it is understood, really, but it's going up and up and up. And the more people learn in America, uh, learn about the occupation and what is happening to the millions of Palestinians basically locked in, uh, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Not that the Israelis don't want to kick them out, but they're certainly not free there. Especially in Gaza, I guess, they're not allowed to travel at all. But anyway, Uh the more people learn about it, the more people realize, oh, that's why people always got a chip on their shoulder about Israel. I, what's to be mad about, about there being in Israel? I mean, the, the Nakba, their trail of tears was back in 1948, and it's horrible. 750,000 people expelled, um, an 80-20 super-duper majority Jewish, um, you know, uh, so-called democracy established. But at least that's a sustainable outcome, as as horrible as it is. It's not, well, you know, there is the matter of the Palestinians in their refugee camps and their right of return and all that. I'm not completely dismissing it, but I'm just saying that's not what people are mad at. What people are mad about is the occupation of the West Bank, and that includes East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip. And I don't know if anybody really cares. Anybody in the West really cares about the Golan Heights, but yeah, that too. And so that's what it's about. And as people learn about the occupation, they go, oh, so there's millions of people that live there who were conquered back in 1967. And uh, they've been ruled under martial law of a foreign military ever since then. How inconvenient for them. Hmm. So those pictures I saw of the little kid throwing a rock at a tank, that wasn't a little kid invasion of Israel, huh? That was an Israeli tank occupying Palestine forever. No wonder the little kid's throwing a rock say the Americans as soon as they figure out which is what that's it that's why they never show a map of Israel Palestine on TV one time they showed one on MSNBC and arguably it was it lacked a little bit of detail and then they ended up retracting it and you know which was completely overboard but they were trying to show about the diminishing control of the territory the people of the West Bank, you know, the Palestinian Authority, whatever, to make that point. But that's only happened one time on MSNBC. That's never been on CNN, I don't think, ever. I've never heard in my life of them saying, okay, look, in the square above my shoulder, here's, you know, Israel. Here is the occupied territory, see, where the Arabs who live here, they're nominally citizens, even though they're second-class citizens, maybe third-class But the people in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, why, they have no rights at all. Uh, They never tell that truth. Uh, But when people find it out and when people start figuring out, when people watch the one-sided slaughters in the Gaza Strip that the Likud Party uh, engages in every couple of years or so as some kind of ritual, um, as they see that from the Palestinian point of view, they see this slaughter called a war. From the Israeli point of view, they start to see through it, and they start to resent being lied to. And what are you going to do, abolish Twitter and Facebook? You know, it's like police brutality. It was only just a few years ago, a very few years ago, that you just couldn't get the national news to pay attention to this at all. In fact, even when it was on Twitter and Facebook all day every day and everybody's talking about it over the kitchen table and this kind of thing, uh, still, it took until Mike Brown's murder by Darren Wilson before finally it broke into the national news, but now they can't ever put it away again because now every local police brutality story is a national story. I mean, not that the national news really covers all of them, but... uh, the movement against police brutality and particularly police murders of innocent unarmed citizens like the one I posted this morning it's on my Twitter feed right now of a guy, unarmed guy standing next to his car and they just execute him and once one cop starts shooting they all start shooting because the rule is make sure you kill them no matter what that way they can't testify against you later they learned that on day one of police training in America anyway And they just straight execute the guy. It's horrifying. If you don't like watching people get murdered, then don't look at it. But I'm telling you, the proof of it is right there on my Twitter feed right now. Scott Horton Show on Twitter. Anyway, sorry, I digress. Uh, And they very well may have been trained by the IDF to treat all Americans as occupied Palestinians. That's a real thing. It sounds like some horrible, you know, stupid anti-Semitic slander even to my ears, you know. Oh, come on, American cops being trained to be like this by the Israelis. Oh, yeah, no, they are. A lot. Anyway, it ain't just all Americans. I think it's particularly... Now, maybe I don't know all the numbers. I'm not the master of all the poll results. But it sounds to me like particularly American Jews are turning against Israel more than others. Because others, they don't care as much. They're not you know, invested in the issue one way or the other. But American Jews are at least expected to take a side, whether they want to even pay attention or care or not. And so, uh, and we talked about this briefly with Grant Smith on the show yesterday. Frank Luntz, who, you know, he's done these studies that could be, I forgot what the thing is called, the global research poll, whatever. If you just search Frank Luntz Israel Poll and PDF file, you know, .dot .pdf, you'll find it, um, where he's giving advice to how to basically lie to and manipulate people and pretend that the Palestinians are occupying the West Bank and the the poor Israelis don't have any rights there. And, uh, you know, all this kind of stuff. It's insane, actually. Um, Because he figured out by doing the polls that the only way to get people... Uh, to inform people in a pro-Israel way to get them to take Israel's side. You have to lie your ass off about everything, or they just won't side with Israel. You have to lie about everything. Okay, same guy. That big fat freak from Fox News that you see doing the dial-up poll. You know who I'm talking about, Frank Luntz, on um, Penn & Teller's show on uh, Showtime, where the guy drives by and goes, yeah, F you, Frank. Just notices him out the window and curses him. It's great. Anyway. This guy did a poll of American Jewish students, Jewish American students, whatever. Anyway, and he decided that their Ministry of Tourism's attempt to market Israel as cool girls in bikinis, quote unquote, has failed completely. And I guess they couldn't think of anything else to try to promote. Um you know, force your American neighbors to pay for you to colonize somebody else's land. They decided to abandon that tack, except for, you know, I guess very certain, uh, you know, groups of uh, religious types or religious right-wingers or something. But anyway, sorry, check it out. Jewish Americans have an increasingly negative image of Israel. Jewish American students have an increasingly negative image of Israel. Just 42% believe that Israel wants peace. That is, the rest recognize that they want to steal the West Bank, especially, and I guess Gaza eventually, and keep it forever, no matter how much killing and dying has to happen in the meantime, which is a long time. Just 38 believe, 38% believe Israel is civilized and Western. Again, because they understand about the occupation and the hypocrisy and the double standard there. Just 31% believe Israel is a democracy. And that's because it's not.